You're listening to the Monocle Daily first broadcast on the 28th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. Brazil may be nearing the end of the Jair Bolsonaro era. The UK is just beginning the Rishi Sunak epoch and an interview with Ukraine's foreign minister about making his country's case in Africa. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who didn't notice that the producer had tied their shoelaces together include Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rhys James. Plus, we'll hear from the German artist Mario Klingemann and visit a new exhibition recalling the years, centuries indeed, when public executions were regarded by Londoners as wholesome family entertainment. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller. Uh, Whatever complaints Brazilians may reasonably have about their politics, they cannot gripe that they are not offered a meaningful range of alternatives. On Sunday, Brazilians will vote in the second round of their presidential election. Their options are sticking with the incumbent, the belligerent conservative nationalist Jair Bolsonaro, or giving another go to a previous president, socialist populist Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva. Polls suggest the contest is as near to a coin toss as makes no odds. I'm joined with more on this by one of those Brazilian voters, Monocle 24 producer and senior correspondent Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Um, Fernando, as regular listeners will be aware, my own Portuguese is not all that it might be, so some of the nuances of the cut and thrust of the debate between the two contenders have escaped me. But I have gleaned that this has not been an uplifting and edifying spectacle. Definitely not, uh, Andrew. And I've been following, you know, Brazilian politics since uh, 2002. That's actually the first time I could vote in an election. Of course, you know, there's always been a little bit of fake news here and attacks, perhaps not dignified ones. But this year, I mean, it's crazy. I think for moderate Brazilians, you know, and there are some, you know, I I have to add here. uh, I mean, the way you look is just the candidates, they accuse each other of all sorts of things. I even wrote a monologue for today's globalist. I said literally they were accusing each other of being of doing pacts with the devil, of being a pedophile. I mean, that's the level of conversation. And it it's, makes it's, me feel embarrassed, actually. Yeah, it, it's, it's not just political differences between these two, is it? Between Lula and Bolsonaro, they really don't like each other. They really don't like each other. And, you know, Brazil has... A, all sorts of problems at the moment. Uh, Poverty has been rising. Our economy is not doing very well. Uh, You know, there's a lot of kind of uh, government spending as well. But, you know, we're talking here about religion. I'm actually very surprised that actually, because even compared to other South American countries that had elections Mm. recently, uh, for example, like Colombia, uh, you know, they were actually discussing how to actually improve their countries. But Brazil, we're talking here who is the more kind of religious 
because of both of them. And in a way, Lula, he, he had to give in to Bolsonaro for his provocations because he knows that there is an important evangelical vote as well. So he can't just ignore that factor. So I kind of understand why he had to also talk about those other uh, other things like religion instead of focusing on, on you know, unemployment or, you know, the economy as well. Though the election is not till Sunday, there is, and it does seem extraordinarily late in the piece, one more presidential debate still to come. That will be tonight. Is it imaginable that at this point there is still literally anybody in Brazil who is on the fence here? Well, apparently there's still like 5% of them, and they are very important. Let's remember the fir- the result from the first round, 48 to Lula, 43 to Bolsonaro, more or less. And the latest polling are saying it's going to be 53-47, Lula leading the way. But of course, the polling in the first round, it was a little bit wrong. I mean, mm. they got a right of Lula, but they were under, underestimating Bolsonaro. It could be the case again. We don't know if the polling, uh, you know, if they change the way they do it. Because a lot of people who are voting for Bolsonaro, they might be a little bit embarrassed. But this debate at TV Global, which is like the BBC, I mean, they're, they're, the audience will be quite uh, big for this one, I would say. I think people are very curious to see, I mean, what are they going to do that on stage? It could change a few votes. And I have to say in 89 when Lula was trying to be mm. for the first time president uh, global it was a pre-recorded event and global did an edit of this which a lot of people say that was unfavorable to lula and that's the reason why he lost that election that's what people say still to today so of course it is important but as you rightly said you know they're such divisive candidates i think their votes are quite crystallized at the mm. moment so we're talking here about five percent of the population still a little bit undecided well, what are you expecting to see from the debate i mean is it going to be just more of the the punch and judy variety mudslinging we've had so far is is it possible that either or both of them are going to suggest you know actual policies no there will be no <laughs> policies there will be no policies the only thing i actually i hope there isn't i hope there's not like actually a physical altercation because in the last debate i was watching i think bolsonaro he put his hand on lula's shoulders and of course lula was a little bit annoyed i was like oh my god something's going to happen so i think they should be not too close to each other in my opinion and to be honest, this is Bolsonaro's. Bolsonaro needs to do a bigger job. He's he's behind the polls. I mean, he he was behind Lula in the first round. So there will be a lot of provocations from him and and a little bit of fake news. I think the latest thing is saying that some local radio stations in the northeast are playing more adverts uh, for Lula's campaign. I mean, th- this hasn't been proven. Uh, you know, this would be a contrary. Uh, to our electoral law. So he's been kind of banging on about this. And he's managing to get attention because everybody is forgetting about uh, Roberto Jefferson, you know, his mm. ally who was throwing grenades against the police. It's funny, there was a 24-hour story in Brazil and people are kind of, you know, it, it, it's already not on the front page. Fernando, who among us has not at some point thrown grenades at police officers? Exactly. Um, we, we, we should talk as well about the gubernatorial contests mm. and not just because gubernatorial is such an immensely satisfying word to say uh, because these are significant as well obviously very significant and and 15 states of brazil they already voted for a governor in the first round but that 12 of them they also went to the second round including sao paulo which is the most popular state and i think that's a very interesting uh, dispute because it kind of you know it, it's a little bit like lula against bolsonaro lula's candidate is fernando Haddad, uh, and 
he's a little bit behind in the polls at the moment. And Tarcísio, he is a former minister of Bolsonaro, who was a little bit ahead in the first round. So that would be quite an interesting dispute because the Workers' Party never governed uh, the state of Sao Paulo. Uh, but I think Fernando Haddad, there was a debate yesterday for the governors. He won the debate, clearly. Uh, and he played around with the fact that Tarcísio is not actually from Sao Paulo. He's from Rio. And he's been leaving the state for about six months. Uh, so, you know, he's playing around of that. I mean, who knows? Uh, it, it's going to be tough, but other 11 states as well. And, and I think we should also look into that because to be a governor in Brazil is a very powerful position. Uh, just a final thought. Um, with most runoff elections where there's only two candidates, you know, that, that that's the choice. It's going to be one or the other. But we do have to think a bit in this instance about what does loom as kind of the nightmare scenario in many respects, which is that Lula wins, but not by very much. Yes. And, and to be honest, like if you asked me like a week ago, I would say, well, don't worry, I don't think nothing's going to happen. Bolsonaro will have to accept this. But, you know, in, in in the last day or two, I mean, that thing that I told you about the radio stations, he's mm. saying, you know, it's a crime against our electoral law. I have a feeling that he will do something about it. You know, I, I believe in Brazilian institutions and I think you know, Bolsonaro already has a very powerful MPs in Congress supporting him in the Senate. He will do something. Of course, if Lula wins, uh, you know, I don't see... Bolsonaro doesn't have the power to do a coup in Brazil, but he can create a little bit of trouble and tension in the next days. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24, and let's now look back at another week, which has been a long time in British politics. On Tuesday, Rishi Sunak was appointed the UK's fifth Prime Minister in the last six years or so. The Conservative Party, which Sunak now leads, managed to swerve the obligation of conducting another leadership contest, meaning that Sunak ascended unopposed, only a little over eight weeks since Conservative members voted against him in a previous leadership contest, preferring Liz Truss. Come on, you remember, etc. I'm joined in the studio with more on this by Monocle 24's senior news producer, Rhys James. Um, Rhys, briefly, if you will, recap what happened this week. What an introduction, Andrew. Yeah, <laughs> it's been yet another wild week in Westminster. Just a few days ago, uh, it looked like the former Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, was set for a dramatic return to frontline politics before he sensationally dropped out of the race to succeed Liz Truss as both the leader of the Conservative Party and as Prime Minister. That left just Penny Morden and Rishi Sunak in the contest. Morden didn't have enough support among her colleagues, which meant that the 42-year-old Sunak became the first non-white leader of the UK and also its youngest head of government in more than 200 years. Uh, he does not lack, of course, for things in his in-tray. I mean, it's, it's probably never easy to become... Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, but I think it's it's less easy right now than it usually is. If you had to sort of try and figure out what his most immediate challenges were, what do you think they'd be? Well, I think we got a good sense of that during his first speech as leader. Sunak met King Charles III at Buckingham Palace on Tuesday morning before making the short journey across London to Number 10 Downing Street. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. It is only right to explain why I'm standing here as your new Prime Minister. Right now, our country is facing a profound economic crisis. The aftermath of COVID still lingers. 
Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets and supply chains the world over. I want to pay tribute to my predecessor, Liz Truss. She was not wrong to want to improve growth in this country. It is a noble aim. And I admired her restlessness to create change. But some mistakes were made. Not born of ill will or bad intentions. Quite the opposite, in fact. But mistakes nonetheless. And I have been elected as leader of my party and your Prime Minister, in part, to fix them. And that work begins immediately. I will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of this government's agenda. This will mean difficult decisions to come. That was uh, Rishi Sunak's maiden speech as Prime Minister. Any prizes for guessing what music was being played underneath that? Uh, or, that, that or being blared in the background as he was speaking? That was Kaiser Chiefs, I it believe. It was. I predict a riot. Uh, so it was. Um, it's not difficult, Reese, to divine the subtext of that address by Rishi Sunak, which basically boiled down to, while my predecessor was well-meaning, she was also bloody useless, and I told you so. Yeah, I think all this undermines kind of just how bad a state the UK's uh, finances are in at the moment. I don't think we can kind of really underestimate that. Although the pound has rallied somewhat since uh, Sunak became leader, there are a whole host of other economic difficulties. Take inflation, for example, the impact of the war in Ukraine on energy costs, and of course, Brexit, the B word. Brexit is particularly important also in the context of what's going on in Northern Ireland. Uh, that part of the UK is subject to uh, a special trading arrangement called the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, that matters because the Democratic Unionist Party there doesn't like the deal mm. um, uh, and essentially has blocked the restoration of power sharing in Northern Ireland. And essentially what that means is, as of today... Northern Ireland now faces, uh, faces fresh elections. One thing that you would also have assumed was a priority of his, or might have hoped, was, of course, climate, which is a priority for everybody. Um, one of his predecessors, at least, Boris Johnson, was a, a noted enthusiast uh, of climate action and, and very much put himself centre stage at COP26 when it was held in Glasgow. Uh, COP27 is being held in Egypt, and Sunak has decided he's not going. That's right. It's been confirmed that he won't be attending next month's COP27 climate summit in, e in Egypt with other senior ministers attending in his place. Now, obviously, this isn't a great look and op opposition parties have rounded on him over the past few days, accusing him of not taking climate change seriously. However, his decision to stay in the UK, I think, underlines just how much domestic pressure he is facing. He's going to have to try and explain the state of the public finances and what needs to be done about it in the, in the coming weeks and months. And I think that the, the calculation has been made in Downing Street is that he and the the current Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, need to stay in place. Uh, and just finally, though, even though he is taking a pass on this big international wingding, the, the occupant of 10 Downing Street is a, a fairly significant presence on the world stage. Yeah. Uh, it was notable that his first call to a foreign leader was not, as it usually is for a British Prime Minister to the President of the United States. It was, in this instance, to the President of Ukraine. Um, but, of course, well, Sunak has come up not through foreign affairs. He, he became first 
publicly well known as Chancellor of the Exchequer at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. Do we know anything at all uh, about how he sees the UK's relations with the rest of the world? Well, I think there's definitely been some more positive news from him on that front. So, as you mentioned, he has spoken to Joe Biden. Joe Biden uh, phoned him to congratulate him on his uh, on his appointment, and apparently, the pair held very constructive talks on the war in Ukraine, which is obviously is obviously a huge issue effect, effect in both countries. And in some other interesting developments today, Andrew, we know that. Liz Truss famously had a quite turbulent relationship with the French president Emmanuel Macron mm-hmm. in, her, in her short tenure. Emmanuel Macron has been on the phone to Rishi Sunak in the past few hours and we understand that both men stress the importance of the Anglo-French alliance in a range of areas including uh, Ukraine, climate, defence and the economy. So although he's facing considerable domestic pressure, it seems that there's a lot more going for him on the international front at least. Rhys James, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, when Russian forces struck Kyiv on October 10th for the first time in months, the country's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba, was on a rare trip abroad. Following the United Nations General Assembly in New York, Kuleba embarked on a diplomatic tour of Africa to re-engage his counterparts in the region and bolster bilateral relations with Ukraine. Those attacks forced Kuleba to put an abrupt end to his trip and return to Kyiv. But for a man who rarely travels abroad, every foreign trip matters. And Africa is a continent where Russia has spent considerable time, resources and energy pressing its influence. Monocle's Carlotta Ribello caught up with Dimitro Kaleba in Kiev today. She asked him about his African tour and if it had been a strategic move to counter Moscow in the region. African countries are making the same mistake European countries had been making before the war began. They put on equal footing Russia and the USSR, Russia and the rest of Soviet republics. So the war in Ukraine that started in 2014 was the first moment when the majority in Europe started actually asked itself a question. Okay, if they are fighting each other, these Russians and Ukrainians, probably they are not the same thing. And we have to look deeper to understand who these people are. It's the same with Africa. In Africa, Russia is USSR. USSR was helping with decolonization. USSR was subsidizing leftist governments uh, across Africa. Uh, USSR was doing trade and building infrastructure in these parts of the world. And Russian propaganda works there too. So the, the mistake that we all made, both here in Ukraine, but also in other capitals in Europe, we were not taking this... Uh, the relationship with Africa in a serious way with African countries. So I went there and I said, guys, first, put the Soviet Union aside. Look at this. Ukraine in the 80s, as member of the United Nations, we held the presidency of the UN General Assembly Committee uh, fighting against apartheid and racial discrimination in Africa. It was not the USSR, it was not Russia, it was us, engineers who came here to build various uh, dams and factories during Soviet times. Many of them were Ukrainians. So you have to make this difference. You have to differentiate. Second, you are speaking how good, uh, how helpful Russia is. Let's take the list of the biggest investors in Africa. Russia, where is it? It's not there. Let's take a list of uh, countries and international institutions who provide uh, African countries with uh, international aid. Where is Russia on the list? 
it is not even there. It's somewhere, on, in both cases, it's, some, it's so low that it becomes invisible. The biggest investment that Russia has made in Africa in recent uh, years is by importing Wagner Group mercenaries to sow conflicts, to destabilize the situation, and to pose threat to your, to your countries. So start thinking rationally about Russia. Base your perception of Russia on facts and not on historical perceptions. But to achieve that, you know, but to make it happen, you have to speak with them. You have to treat them with respect, and uh, that's what we do. And that is also what we will continue to do. That was Ukraine's Foreign Minister Dmitry Koleba speaking to Carlotta Ribello in Kiev. This is The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, for 700 years or thereabouts, public executions were part of everyday life in London, giving the city the nickname at one point the City of Gallows. The acts of beheading, hanging, burning and even boiling each played a role in ushering Londoners towards a sorry end. A new exhibition documents all of this and more, and Monocle's Sophie Monocle. Han Coombs has more on that now. On my daily cycle home from Midori House, I pass Marble Arch, and here there's a circular landmark on the floor that reads, The Site of Tyburn Tree. Unassuming now, perhaps, but this place played a key role in history. It earned London the title of the bloodiest city in Europe. A new exhibition chronicles how this nickname was acquired, covering a 700-year period between the first execution at Tyburn in 1196 until 1868. Beverly Cook is curator of social history at the Museum of London and the lead curator of the Executions exhibition. We start our conversation at The Bloody Code, a list of 200 crimes people could be executed for by the end of the 18th century. A lot of them refer to crimes against property because by the 18th century that was regarded as very important and therefore the bloody code represents that. Um, Some of them are really strange to us today. I think one of my favourite crimes that you could be executed for is cutting down a young tree in a gentleman's pleasure ground, which is very bizarre. Beverly's brought together a huge array of items related to the practice of public executions. One of the most important is a knitted silk vest that was very likely worn by Charles I during his execution in 1649. The day in which he was beheaded was extremely cold and it's rumoured that he wore two vests under his shirt to stop him shivering and have the crowd interpret it as fear. Other items are more obviously off-putting. We have here a gibbet cage and unfortunately for many murderers, gibbeting was an extra form of punishment. So before their execution, they would be measured up by a blacksmith to make sure that um, a gibbet was made that fitted them. And then after their execution, their body would be hung in a gibbet cage like this one and suspended from a pole, which could have been about nine meters high. These gibbets were all over London and the bodies would hang there for months, sometimes years. And again, they were a real scene of attraction for Londoners. Many people would come, particularly on a Sunday, to see the gibbeted body decaying in its cage. The reason it was an added punishment is because most people in the 18th century were Christian by nature. 
and obviously they believed in resurrection and so they knew that to be put in a gibbet this would really you know impact on their on their ability to be resurrected and um, it was seen as an extra punishment that many of them actually feared more than the actual execution itself. It's unsettling, of course, to think of this scene as one of attraction, but they were, and all forms of entertainment need accompanying refreshments. And the snack of choice for those in the crowds? Pies. Public executions made up an important part of the working class economy. Pie sellers, as well as gingerbread and ginger ale sellers, relied on them for their livelihood, as did the hawkers of so-called gallows literature. This was an opportunity to earn a lot of money because um, a high-profile public execution could attract about 50,000 people, which was a huge number at that time, particularly you know, when London only had a few million residents. It was often said that people treated public executions like a fair you know a lot of apprentices would take time off work and this is one of the reasons why social reformers and penal reformers started to question the whole idea of public execution and public punishment was it a deterrent or was it just regarded as a form of a fair or a day out for people so when did executions in london finally meet their own fate The last to take place in London was in 1868, five years after the introduction of the London Underground. So if you can imagine, for the last few years of public executions, people could actually travel on the London Underground to see an execution. And that just makes you realise how how ridiculous that, that comparison is. There was also other reasons why public executions ended. One of those was the availability of transportation to uh, Australia by then, because the need for cheap labour in the newly colonised areas became more important than killing people for crime. You also see from the 1829, we now have a police force, a metropolitan police force in London. And of course, that meant that more and more people were being arrested. So if everyone arrested by the police was executed, we would have had a bloodbath in London more than we were having already. And the other thing that really shows a shift in opinion is reformers, penal reformers who decided that really, you know, what's the point in killing these criminals, many of whom were very young, Perhaps we can reform them. Yet, of course, while capital punishment is a part of London's history, it is still something faced by people around the world. One of a few reasons, perhaps, that the visitors to this exhibition have found its content so moving. That was Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. And finally on today's show, the German artist Mario Klingemann has been called a pioneer in the field of artificial intelligence art. He works in machine learning using algorithms and AI, and he's developed an autonomous entity called Botto, which is able to be creative and co-creative based on feedback from a community of users. So far, Botto's artworks have sold for more than $2 million. Mario is showcasing Botto a whole year of co-creation in London this week, he stopped by Midori House to chat to Monocle's Laura Kramer about this project. I have been working with artificial intelligence, all these newfangled technologies, a decade maybe, until also all the components necessarily to do that came into place. 
One of my children is Botto, which is an autonomous decentralized artist, we call it. It's an artist that lives on the blockchain and uh, creates art. Others might disagree. We can still discuss if they are art, but to lots of people, they are very impressive and novel. And so it felt like, yes, this is something that has the quality to be put out there. At the same time, also, it required the, the whole blockchain technology in order to work. Because uh, the idea of having something that is autonomous also means that it has to actually pay for its own upkeeping. So in order to be autonomous, you have to be able to pay your rent. This machine has to sell in order to survive. So there are 5,000 members part of the community. How does that aspect work? The way it works is that Botto is in a way autonomous, that it searches the possibility space of imagery on its own, but then it makes proposals to the community. And uh, the community votes on those proposals, and the voting data teaches Botto what they prefer and their preferences and also what they don't like. So the idea is through this feedback loop, Botto gets better and better in anticipating what its audience and owners uh, want. Like or unlike a human artist, it tries to please. So it tries to make art that pleases. It brings up questions about who gets to make the call of what art is. And is that its sole purpose then to be aesthetically pleasing? The way I believe art works is kind of, it's a complex system. So there are many factors that go into it. Of course, there's the artist, but the artist is nothing with an audience and also critical reception. The difficulty is that uh, right now, AI is probably not at the stage yet where you could have it also be intellectually pleasing or challenging on its own, right? So... Aesthetics is something you can optimize. You could probably build some machine that pretends to also uh, serve those other aspects, but in my, my eyes, that would probably be faking it. And faking it is not part of Botto. Everything if, that happens with Botto is, is what I say or what the, the team around it says. So there's no secret stuff behind the scenes where, oh, we don't like that image, throw it away. Or So ultimately, Botto is also an ongoing project. So when AI gets better and uh, it's kind of trustworthy enough to, to be given the reins for other adventures, excursions, then it maybe Botto makes conceptual art or political art or something else. But at the moment, it felt, not, it felt disingenuous to, to try to also cover these aspects of it. Perhaps we will see a Botto take more risks down the line. I mean, I would hope it to take risks, but so it is still around. So it survived for a year and it's doing well. And uh, so now it has also the, let's say, the means to maybe get more risky. But again, it's... Uh, <sighs> Ideally, I wanted to, to, to decide that by itself, but... I could ask, for example, like Botto uses the GPT-3, which is this text, this really powerful text model. And it, Botto uses it a lot to write descriptions about the artworks and the titles and everything. And it also uh, answers interviews with that. So the same mechanism could be used to ask Botto what it wants to do. Like, where do you want to go next? It just felt at this point it's too early. 
And what can you tell us about the future of AI art? Is Baro the answer? Well, I hope it's the future of art, but uh, <laughs> maybe I'm going too high. So yeah, maybe it's the future of AI art. It was foreseeable that we would get to the stage where AI becomes a competitor. Now, a lot of, uh, let's say, analog human artists are feeling some pressure because it's really encroaching on their territory. So, and uh, I hope not that this is the future of AI art, that there's a competition, but uh, I hope at the same time that it keeps the conversation interesting and is maybe a bit of a provocation. And uh, in the end, it's about where we want art to be. And seemingly, Botto currently serves a certain purpose. That was Mario Klingerman speaking to Laura Kramer. A one, a two, a one, two, three, four. And news breaking in the last few minutes. Jerry Lee Lewis, one of the last standing original rock and roll pathfinders, has died at the surprisingly advanced age of 87. Lewis's signature fury sprouted from the contradiction that animated rock's early years. It was the sound of southerners who feared God playing the devil's music. Lewis, a peer of Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash, was more tormented by it than most. Lewis's lurid legend and all the stories, hair and hell-raising, are probably more or less true, was underpinned by a prodigious talent. All rock and roll, to some extent, bucks and twitches to the beat set by Lewis's left hand, pounding the lower keys like they'd walked into the bar and asked for a drink with a paper umbrella in it, while his right hand picked out frantic yet delicate top-line melodies. Lewis turned those hands to most idioms of American popular song, but his greatest moments blossomed from a passionately requited relationship with country music. It's a selection from this canon which plays us out, Jerry Lee Lewis's version of Chris Christopherson's Me and Bobby McGee. That's all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our guests today, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Rhys James. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening. Bye.